God is sitting on the throne. That means he's in power. He's in authority. We use the term today. We speak of a congressman who's been seated. That is, he's in office. Or we speak of someone who lost the election that he was unseated. And so God is seated on the throne, and that is going to be emphasized and underscored all the way through the revelation that God knows what he is about, and he is in absolute control. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we move into chapter 4 today in a message entitled, A Glimpse of Heaven. And that's exactly what's portrayed in our passage. Now, if you've thought heaven is made up of streets of gold with angels sitting on clouds playing harps, be prepared to have your horizons expanded beyond anything you could ever imagine. This passage, like much of the Revelation, is challenging. But by God's grace, Dr. Brogy is going to unpack it for you bit by bit and verse by verse. So let's join him now for A Glimpse of Heaven. Take God's Word. Would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4? This morning we turn a corner in this great book. We move into the third section where Jesus begins to tell John about future events that he records to us. Now for the average person, the future is very important. You turn on the television and there's a good chance you're going to hear someone making some kind of prediction about the future. It might be some scientist who is forecasting some new technology coming down the pike. It might be some pundit who will pontificate on the next election. Or maybe some ambassador who is dealing with world peace and what he believes the outcome will be. And I suppose the one we hear most accurately every day is the weather forecast, right? (laughs) Well, the future is big business. In fact, Americans this year will spend in the billions of dollars through the occult of the new age to learn something about their future. Yet the Bible is clear that only God truly knows the future. And of course, we should be interested in the future. And most Christians are. Whenever a pastor preaches on Revelation, attendance begins to shoot up. We should know something about the future because the future should dictate how we live now. So this morning, we're going to deal with some challenging scripture. It's not an easy passage. And if I were preaching the highlights of the Bible, I would skip this. I would skip Revelation 4 and just go, or just maybe deal with a couple verses in it. But we're going to go through every verse by God's grace, and you get what you can. Understand that teaching the Bible, you're teaching some people brand new truths they've never heard before, and you have to do that as a pastor, like a teacher teaching their students their numbers. At the other end of the spectrum, you have teachers who are teaching their students calculus and everything in between. So wherever you are, don't worry about what you don't know. Take what God gives you this morning and apply it to your life. Let's begin by reading the text, Revelation chapter 4. We want to begin in verse 1 where we left off. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. 
And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne comes flashes and lightning and sound and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Let me take a moment to set the context. We've learned from Revelation 1 and verse 7 that the theme of the book is that Christ is coming again on the clouds in glory. And we also learned in Revelation 1 and verse 19 what the outline of the book was. If you remember, therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. So in Revelation 1, he writes about the things he had seen, and he records for us that glorious vision of the Lord Jesus in heaven. Then, beginning in chapter 2, all the way through the end of chapter 3, which we've spent the last seven sessions on, he records Christ's message of what is, of seven literal actual churches that were functioning in the day that John was given this revelation. But then he is going to write about those things that will take place after these things. After these things, the last three words of Revelation 1.19 and the first three words of Revelation 4 and verse 1. After these things. So beginning in chapter 4, we move into the future section. Now he starts by giving us a picture of what is actually going on in heaven after the church is removed. What we're going to begin to read in these next several weeks in the fourth and fifth chapters is what will take place after the church is caught up. In the fourth chapter, we see the Father on the throne. In the fifth chapter, we see God the Son next to the Father and how he has given the scroll to begin to unfold the judgment of God. And so after these things, it's repeated twice in chapter 4 in verse 1 so that we cannot absolutely miss it. So the things past, chapter 1, it's about the Christ. The things present, chapters 2 and 3, it's about the church. The things future, about the consummation of future things. And he will take us all the way from the catching up of the church through the great tribulation to the glorious return of Christ to the earth, his rule and reign for a thousand years, and then the new eternal state which he will create. So that's kind of where we're at. 
Now, if you want to take a few notes, there's an outline there in your bulletin. Let's begin with the person sitting on the throne. The person sitting on the throne. Once again, in verse 1, it begins, after these things. And of course, the careful reader will ask, after what things? After the things that he's described, the things that are in chapters 2 and 3. And so, beginning now in chapter 4, we're moving again into the future section of the book. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This, I believe, is a picture of the rapture of the church. And I think it will become apparent to you as you work through the entire book. The church has been repeatedly mentioned in the opening chapters. We will not see the church mentioned at all until chapter 19 when we come back with Jesus in glory. And so it's not by accident that what we're going to study, the great tribulation period, God's people are not here. Why? Because God promised that he would remove them. We studied that promise in Revelation 3 and verse 10. Let me refresh your minds with it. Jesus is addressing the church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, you're not saved by persevering, but if you are saved, you will persevere. You're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. So these people gave evidences that they had met Jesus. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There is an hour of testing. It's called the great tribulation that is going to come upon the whole world. There's never been a time in human history when the entire planet at once was under great turmoil, but that time is coming. I will take you out from that hour of testing. That's the promise. I will keep you, ektereo, out of, from. He doesn't say I'll carry you through it and sustain you while you're here during the great tribulation. He says, I'm not going to keep you in spite of the hour of testing. The promise is I will take you out of the hour of testing. By the way, this promise made originally to the church at Philadelphia that he will um, uh, remove them is absolutely meaningless for those Christians who say that we'll be here for the great tribulation. It would be a meaningless promise to them. Why would it be meaningless that Jesus would sustain them through the tribulation? Because the church in Philadelphia, all the members are dead. They've been dead for a few thousand years. In fact, if you go to the seven churches of the Revelation today, with the exception of two cities, there is no church. So why is this a meaningful promise? It's going to be meaningful to them. They will see a different aspect of the promise. The rapture has two parts. There are people who are alive when Jesus comes. They're taken off the earth. For the Lord himself, 1 Thessalonians 4, will descend from heaven with a shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Philadelphians who knew Jesus, who are in heaven, because absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so in that chapter, I didn't read it, but you can read it for yourself. He will bring back with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he's going to take the departed saints. He'll bring their spirits back from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first, the second half of the rapture. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and will always be with the Lord. The church is going to literally disappear from the earth. It could happen today. It could happen next week. No one knows for sure. 
There's no prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and gather his church. That's why the New Testament describes the return of Jesus as imminent. It could happen at any moment. There's all kinds of prophecy that have to happen for the second coming. The second coming is a predicted event, and there are all kinds of things that must unfold. But God promises his people that he will remove them. 1 Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. You say, is the uh, seven-year tribulation an expression of God's wrath? Yes, it is. That's what Revelation 6.16 calls it. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The seven-year tribulation is an expression of God's wrath that will turn into his eternal wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10 says that we are not waiting for wrath, but we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So this is a promise he made to the church at Philadelphia who had the marks of genuine conversion. I will take you out of the hour of testing that will come upon the whole earth. You say, that's a great promise for them. What does it mean to me? Well, it's a promise that he makes not just to them, but he makes to all the churches. It's a promise that he applies to every born-again Christian. This is not what he says to the church, but what he says to the churches. Now, this is a frightful day that is coming. Let me read the words of Jesus when he describes these seven years that we're going to study in detail. For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short. No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So because the church at Philadelphia had persevered and showed the marks of conversion, I'll keep you out of that hour of testing. And he who has an ear, let him hear what he says, not to the church, but to the churches. This applies to every church, to every congregation, whether it's the church in Philadelphia or the church in Beaufort, South Carolina this morning. Now, some have tried to say that we will be here during the tribulation, and we will see that that is an impossible position to hold if you just plainly interpret the revelation. Some will say, well, the promise that God made to Philadelphia is he will uh, keep them somehow during, he will deliver them from God's wrath during the tribulation. That that's the promise that he made, that since they were such deeply committed Christians, while they're here for the tribulation, they just won't feel it. Listen, all you have to do is read Revelation and you discover a great multitude of people who have their heads cut off, who are executed, tribulation saints, are not promised deliverance. Only the church is promised to be delivered from the wrath to come. Now again, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. By the time we're done, I think you will see clearly that this open door is in reference to the church that has been raptured. Now the word rapture is not found in the Bible, and some would say, oh, it's not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word Trinity. Actually, the word rapture is in the Bible. It's in the Latin Bible. The Latin Bible was the only translation used by the body of Christ for virtually a thousand years. 
And the words caught up are the words rapto, and so we have adopted the word rapture. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Some have taught that we'll be here for the tribulation so that the church can be purified and prepared for heaven. That's good Roman Catholic theology, but it's not a good biblical theology. In the 7th century, Pope Gregory invented the doctrine of purgatory. He also adopted for himself the doctrine of papal infallibility, that whenever the pope speaks ex cathedra, he speaks with absolute authority. And of course, because Catholics do not believe that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, that if you don't live a good enough life now, that when you die, and the only exception to this in Catholic theology are the saints, in the New Testament, every Christian is a saint, the newest Christian, the oldest Christian, the most consistent, the most inconsistent. Every Christian in the New Testament is called a saint. But in Roman theology, only those who have lived a certain life and have done certain things are deemed saints. So most of us wouldn't fall into that category. And so they teach that when you die, you go to purgatory. And once you've suffered enough in purgatory, per Mary's dictate, you are released from purgatory and brought into heaven. Now, the Bible is very clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One second after you die, if you know Jesus, you are in his presence. And so it's a picture that God gives all the way through Scripture. For instance, just before God poured out his wrath in the great flood, he put Noah and his family safely in the ark. Just before God rained fire and brimstone down on heaven, he removed Lot and his two believing daughters. And just before God destroyed Jericho, he took Rahab and her family out of that city of Jericho. And just before God pours wrath upon the world, he will open a door and let the church in. Now, the person on the throne, of course, as we will see, is God the Father, Jesus, as we'll see beginning next time, and we'll be in chapter 5 for a few weeks, is standing at the right hand of the throne. But there are three aspects of the Father's character that are underscored. First, that the Father is great in his government, that he's great in his government. We get that from verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So here's John being a given a vision of heaven, and the center is this throne. And of course, the throne is a major theme and subject in the Revelation. It appears some 40 times throughout the book, 12 times in this chapter alone. And by the way, one of the truths that we're struck with in this chapter is that heaven is not a figment of someone's imagination. It's a very real place. When we come to the end of the book, we're going to learn that the place people go today, it's called by many names, paradises, paradise, the Father's throne, so forth. I mean, the Father's house, uh, heaven. That place is going to literally, the new Jerusalem, heaven, is going to literally come down and become the capital city of a brand new planet. The current earth that we live on, God is going to burn with fire. But God's going to take the capital city, heaven, and bring it down. It's a very real place. There's real people. There's real streets. There's real travel. There's real gates. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you all, come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's talking about a real place. And the average person knows very little about heaven. They think of it as a place with wispy clouds and we're playing harps. And for all of eternity, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do in our boredom. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
By the time we're, we're done, I hope you will have a clear conceptual picture of what heaven is really like. And so I say that this first is a picture of the Father and His government because the throne is a symbol throughout the Bible of the rule and reign and authority and government of God. Now remember, we learned in the opening verse that the revelation was communicated, and we saw on the margin, signified. The word signified, the first four letters were sign, S-I-G-N. The revelation is signified, so there are many symbols that God uses all the way through the revelation. And in Scripture, you find what's called Christophanies. That's when Christ appears before the incarnation in the Old Testament. But there's also some theophanies. Theos, God. A theophany is an appearance of God. For instance, in Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham. And so this isn't a theophany of, of sorts. Obviously, God is spirit, so he doesn't need a throne to sit on. But God will often wrap himself in human characteristics so that we can get a handle of what he's like. When the Bible says the arm of the Lord is not short, he doesn't have a literal arm. When it says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, God the Father doesn't have literal eyes. Those are anthropomorphisms. Those are human characteristics ascribed to God so that we can better understand what he is like. But thrones in the Bible symbolize authority. And what's communicated here is that God's government, God's rule, God's sovereignty as at work during this time. We're told in verse 2 uh, that this throne is standing. Now that's important for John to hear. Because remember, as we come to the end of the age, the Bible predicts that ultimately things will not get better. Things will get worse. There'll be a downgrade in human behavior. People will become more hateful, more violent, more aggressive, more sinful. Men's hearts will grow cold. And then after the church is removed and the last vestige of light and salt is gone from the earth, all hell is going to break loose. And so John will need to remember that as he receives these truths, that there's a throne that is standing, that God is in charge, that while sin appears to be winning, God in the end will overrule. History, we used to say, is his story, and indeed it is. And so the events that will unfold are given from the vantage point of heaven, that the events on earth are not capturing God by surprise that there's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity, that God is not wringing his hands up in heaven and saying, do you see that? You see what they're doing down there? Man, I didn't know that was going to happen. He is in absolute control, and he knows what is happening. And verse 1 says these events, note, must take place, and they will take place because God has planned the future. Now, there's a new theology that has come into evangelicalism. It's called open theism. And unfortunately, what was once a great evangelical press, InterVarsity Press, can no longer be trusted. And so sometimes they put out books on open theism. Open theism that is being taught in a lot of American evangelical churches says that God doesn't know everything. It basically says that while God doesn't know how things will turn out, he knows all the potential options, but it's all dependent on us. Listen, God is in control, and if God doesn't know everything, you've got a lot to fear. We're in big trouble. 
Some people are teaching today that man is dictating what is going to happen in the future. Look, if man is dictating what is going to happen in the future, it is a colossal failure from his past. If Adam and Eve couldn't pull it off in a perfect environment, I can tell you right now, fallen man won't make it happen. But God is sitting on the throne. That means he's in power. He's in authority. We use the term today. We speak of a congressman who's been seated. That is, he's in office. Or we speak of someone who lost the election, that he was unseated. And so God is seated on the throne, and that is going to be emphasized and underscored all the way through the revelation that God knows what he is about, and he is in absolute control. So the Father is great in his government, but also the Father is great in his glory. The first half of verse 3 we read, And he was sitting, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. So John sees the Father seated on the throne, but his figure is somewhat lost in this display of dazzling light. It's a description of God in one sense without really being a description. Notice, no form is given because no form can be given. The Bible says that God dwells in, uh, in unapproachable light. No man can see God and live, the Scripture says. We can see his glory. And had not the Lord Jesus tabernacled among us, and he became flesh, the Bible says, and dwelt, the word dwelt is tabernacled. God tabernacled among us, literally it says. Had the Lord Jesus not taken on our humanity, you could not have looked upon him before the incarnation and lived. And so the Father was sitting, and his appearance is like the jasper stone, and also a sardius in appearance. So John is using this vivid, descriptive uh, similes. It's like or it's the appearance of in order to describe the Father. Now, the jasper stone is not some opaque stone. We know that from Revelation chapter 21, 11. It's a clear stone. It's probably, who knows, maybe a diamond. The Bible says in that chapter, it is crystal clear. So it speaks of radiance and brilliance and translucence. And in many ways, it's a reflection of God's holiness. But not only does he speak of the jasper stone, around the throne, there's another stone, a sardius in appearance. A sardius is ruby red. Why would God have a ruby red sardius type of light around the throne? Because of the blood of Christ. You say, I get that for Jesus. How do I get that for the Father? The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, we don't worship three gods. We worship one God. And the members of the Godhead are inseparable. You say, how could the cross be a demonstration of the Father's love? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. How is that an expression of God's love? If he loved us so much, why didn't he come down and die? Because the members of the Godhead are so inseparable that for Jesus to die, for him to give of himself, it's a demonstration of the Father's love. To see me, Jesus said, is indeed to see the Father. And so we will dig deeper concerning these stones, and I'll save it for later when we come to the end of the book, but I just want to briefly mention them. We could also mention that the high priest wore a, a tablet 
with 12 stones on that tablet. And the first stone was the Jasper stone, and the second and the last stone was the Sardius. And it was a reminder to Israel that God had the people of Israel on his heart. So God's great in his government. He's great in his glory. Third, the Father is great in his grace. He's great in his grace. Tomorrow, we'll see the immensity of God's grace as we continue this message entitled, A Glimpse of Heaven. We hope you're learning much from our study in the Revelation. We know that this book of the Bible can be particularly challenging, and so we invite you to listen again to this or any of the messages in this series. It's easy to do. Simply download and use the Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Or visit our recently redesigned website at searchthescriptures.org. If you prefer, you can order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478. Simply ask for program REV11. However you listen, would you also consider supporting this teaching ministry with a one-time or a recurring gift? Your financial support allows us to introduce men and women, both young and old, to Jesus Christ and to grow believers in their relationship with Him. Thank you. Tomorrow, part two of A Glimpse of Heaven. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music>